I hope your family gatherings are event-free in a bad way at least. But I do know sometimes they turn a corner. Go ahead and turn to Job 42. I promise you we're going to finish today. My name is James Barr. If you didn't know, I'm the youth pastor here at Grace. Uh, and it has been a joy to take you through Job. It's taught me a lot. But I want to start by opening a can of worms. Well, more specifically, a can of sweet potatoes. This is one of the fights of Thanksgiving that can happen, is what do you put on your sweet potato casserole? Is it plain, just sweet potatoes? Is there brown sugar? Is there pecans, I think, and brown sugar, or just pecans? Are you one of the crazy people, and apparently offensive, I didn't know that until this week, who put marshmallows on top of them? Are you one of the creatives, or more offensive people that put pineapple on top of them. I heard that one today or, or this weekend for the first time, and I'm actually intrigued by that. I don't know how pineapple made its way on pizza or on sweet potato casserole, but I like it on pizza, however you all feel about that, and I'd be willing to try it on sweet potato casserole. But here's the thing. This is not Thanksgiving heresy. This is Thanksgiving application or translation, or interpretation. Let me explain a little bit. The only thing heretical that you could do at Thanksgiving in terms of food would be to invite the entire family over and then substitute tofurkey in the place of turkey without telling them that you are going to make that change or introducing an impossible ham instead of a real ham. That would be heresy. You have ruined Thanksgiving those of you who plan on that, just advertise it ahead of time. I'm not going to join you, but you can celebrate if you want to, but it would be heretical to introduce it without that advertisement ahead of time. It would be errant if, like my family, you consistently leave the rolls in the oven because they're still cooking, and you go and have Thanksgiving dinner, and then you burn the rolls and that's the reminder to take them out of the oven. You have made a mistake. So the first is an offensive, you've changed Thanksgiving error of the greatest kind, that's heresy. Heresy is not every, every mistake that a Christian makes, by the way. It's not every theological error. It's reserved primarily, if you look up the definition, and more importantly, the practical definition, for the things that we are errant on that are essential to faith. Not important, Many things are important without actually being essential to salvation. If you get Christology wrong, you are heretical. But you can make many other errors, just like introducing tofurkey. Not at any meal, but Thanksgiving in particular. But everything else, what you put on your sweet potato casserole, that would fall under translating the recipe that would fall under applying the recipe, and that would fall under interpreting, understanding the recipe. Theologically, we have some similar things. Things that we often fight over as if it is heresy, or even errancy, but it actually isn't that significant. Not to that degree. That doesn't mean it's not still important. But there are things that involve translation disagreements, there are things that involve interpretation and understanding of a passage, disagreements, and there are things that involve simply applying the passage. How we live it out on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday 
not just how we understand it from the pulpit or in Sunday school classes on Sunday morning or in our devotional reading. So you have Christological errors and some others. There's not as many as you think that are, are the realm of heresy. There is errancy, and I'll give you a very significant one. First Corinthians dealt with this, the American, actually two. The American church sometimes butchered these, and it's our drifting away from the, sex, the biblical and historical sexual ethic into what our culture does. That would be errancy. It's not heresy. It's not to that level. If you paid attention, by the way, to a Christian chapel in our nation this, this week, um, there was a speaker that called out a number of organizations, including Crew, and called them heretics because they felt they're wrong on the biblical sexual ethic. That would not be the level of heresy. It's not essential to salvation, even though it's important. That would be the realm of errancy. Another one that 1 Corinthians deals with is unity and division within the church. See, both of those are the things that when Paul says, you are the temple, he says, y'all together are the temple. Get it together and quit fighting. That's the first time he says it. And the second one, he says, you individually are the temple. And I'm only talking about sexual sin when I mention that. Not whether or not you get a tattoo. But our country likes to make that on our t-shirt, our workout verse, my body's a temple, I will cherish it. And Paul said, you did hear the part where I said I was talking about one sin. Which, by the way, our culture is bad at. No shock that we want to make it a workout verse and not a relationship verse, which is what Paul was addressing. But most of what we fight about isn't those two things. Most of what we fight about actually falls under, and it can be errancy, it could even sometimes be heresy, but most of it comes down to those other three categories of we're disagreeing over a translation, we're disagreeing over application, or we're disagreeing over interpretation. A translation, I don't want to open up another can of worms. This is a whole other sermon, and I'm not doing this today. I promise I'm wrapping up Job 42, but I'll give you a very simple one. And we all know it if we're, if we're studying the Bible and we're paying attention to it, especially when we go to the Greek. In 1 Timothy 2 and 3, it says woman, 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 woman. It does not say woman, wife, women, or woman, wife, deaconesses. It says woman, woman, woman. Everything else that the translators are doing is interpretation. They're not necessarily wrong in that, but it's a translation discussion. And when our passages, whichever Bible that you're reading, whichever translation you're reading, when it says that, if it's done anything other than woman consistently in all of those, then it's making a different declaration than just this is what the original Greek said. That's a fun discussion. I would love to have it with you. That's not my sermon today. It's just an example. Our passage today, I think, actually falls into that category. There's another one, though, of application that people sometimes will fight over and struggle with. Probably not the prominent one, but this still isn't heresy. In fact, it's in a creed. It's the harrowing of hell. And all of you just thought, what in the world did he say? I don't know that word, the heroine of hell. But it's whether or not Christ descended into hell or whether he descended into the grave. And it's an interesting and fun theological discussion. Again, it's not my sermon today, 
we can have that conversation if you want to, but it mostly comes out of the creed, the Apostles' Creed, and then 1 Peter 3 and 3 and 4. Really, it comes out of the creed and the King James Version of 1 Peter 3 and 3 and 4. Not verses 3 and 4, by the way, chapters 3 and 4, but I think it's more 3 than 4, but I, I saw both when I was looking up, and I didn't want to study it this week. I was just trying to refresh myself on that. But here's where we really like to fight. It's application. There's not a single one of us that needs help in understanding what it means to love your neighbor. Not in terms of what was said. But we love to fight over what it looks like to love your neighbor. In fact, if you look at Christians and how we divide politically with each other, that's most of the fight. We're arguing over whether the Bible means love your neighbor this way or that way, or this other way, or a fifth way. I skipped fourth. That might have been intentional, and it might not have. We can fight over that if you want to. But that is all sweet potato casserole fighting. Here's the solution, by the way, if you haven't figured it out for sweet potato casserole, unless I'm wrong about how it cooks, would be this. With or without a divider, do multiple versions. I know it's more work on the cooks. You can spread it about out among the family, and you could say, you make the one with marshmallows because a couple people are going to love that one. You make the one with brown sugar and pecans because some people are going to love that one. You can just slice up the sweet potatoes. You don't even have to make a whole casserole. And none of those are wrong. It just means you have extra side dishes at, Christ at Thanksgiving. Christmas, too, if you want it. But at Thanksgiving, there are variations of application and interpretation of a recipe. And I don't mean the theological ones are as easy of a solution as that. They often aren't. And I don't mean to downplay their significance or value. Sometimes we need to have those discussions and disagreements. But don't call somebody a heretic because they disagree with you on application. That would be its own version of errancy. So be careful with that. But I want to take you to one particular translation disagreement, although interestingly, it's kind of its own category at the same time, because you see, this happens sometimes too, where nobody's arguing over it, but maybe we should. Everybody just seems to quote the same person who translated it the first time, or land at the same conclusion, including, by the way, my favorite commentary series, I mention it all the time, the New American Commentary, which I think got this one wrong and right, but mostly wrong. They throw a footnote in there, which I'm going to share with you some quotes from it, but it's very interesting. I want to start, though, and we're going to read through all of Job 42, but unlike the last two weeks, we're going to actually section it out. So Job 42, verse 1 through 6. As we wrap up Job, as I weigh in even more on why I think Job doesn't need to repent, actually, and is debatably repentant, it matters how you translate a word. Job 42, 1 through 6. By the way, you can disagree with me on that. It's a sweet potato casserole disagreement, and that's okay. Job 42, verse 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord, all caps, Yahweh. Job answered Yahweh and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? 
Therefore I have uttered what I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself, and unlike I read it last week, and repent in dust and ashes. But if you notice, some of you have a little footnote by the word repent. And if you remember, last week I read it this way, therefore I despise myself and I am consoled in dust and ashes. There's a debate in this word that really isn't being had very much and somewhat interesting or very interesting. And it changes how you land the plane when you're wrapping up Job. Whether you think He's repentant and needed to repent. Whether you think he overreached in his words, he was incorrect, he was errant in his words, not heretical, mind you, but errant. Or you think it's ending and telling us something the complete opposite of that. And it all comes down to that word that is translated either repent or, well, nobody really translates it in this passage any different, but maybe they should because elsewhere... They do. I'm calling chapter 42, by the way, the restoration and the consolation of Job. He is restored. That's not debatable. But he might, and I think is actually consoled. Let me lay out the case. You can still disagree with me afterwards if you want to. But what he maybe says is, I am consoled or I am comforted. As you wrestle with it and you ask, did he go too far? It's easy to say that he did. He has strong words for God. It makes us more comfortable if what he said crossed the line because we don't think we can talk to God that way. On top of that, everybody translates it as if it's what it says there, repent. So why did I read it, I am consoled, last week and again today? Why do I call it the restoration and the consolation of Job? And I think it's that translators need to wrestle with the fact that they are actually interpreting this word. In fact, they must, because it has a couple definitions. It either means repent, or it means consoled or comforted. And it gets used both ways in Scripture. It's a little complicated. But here's what the Knack commentator said, Robert Aiden said this, then he repented in dust and ashes, an outward demonstration of his inward contrition and the death of his own opinions. He deeply regretted the presumption of his foolish words. Repent and comfort are both translations of the same word, but certainly this context expects repentance. Did you hear what he said? It means both. The translator has to make an interpretive choice here. And his interpretive choice is is made upon this decision. Repent is the only one that fits. At least that's what he thinks. But don't forget, dust and ashes, while a sign for repentance, is actually a sign for grieving. Repentance is an act of grieving. I grieve over my sin, so I put on dust and ashes like a grieving, mourning person. So the fact he's in dust and ashes shouldn't make you automatically think it's repentance. It could be repentance. 
It often is believed to be repentance. But it could just be grieving. Why would he grieve? He's lost everything. Don't forget chapters 1 and 2. But here's the other thing from that. At this point, the quote I just gave you is a footnote. And in his footnote, the author mentions this. D.J. O'Connor, I have no idea who that is, by the way. But I agree with him. D.J. O'Connor, however, argues for I am consoled, even though he was still in dust and ashes. Job's final words, word, I am consoled. See, the context doesn't only insist upon repentance. The context just as equally could insist upon consolation. You have a grieving man begging to hear from God. He hears from God. All of Job is making it clear he has not sinned to bring this moment upon himself. There's also an indication that he hasn't sinned in his words, and that's coming up in a minute, by the way. That comes from a pretty authoritative source, authoritative source, but I'll get to that in a minute. He hears from God, and God's response is absolutely strong and powerful and challenging and arguably rebuking, but maybe not necessarily so. See, Job won in a wrestling match, and he got a wrestling match. And when God enters the ring with us, he enters to win. Because he's wrestling for us, and he doesn't want to lose us. And so he's going to win that wrestling match, but not the way we think. He's going to win that wrestling match for our betterment, and for the case of Job, Job needed God's power. That's what he's begging for. I've lost everything. I need power. I don't know how to say that right now, so I'm going to declare that I want my day in court. And God comes in in power. And remember, Job says, I'll be quiet now. And then Job just said, according to the translation, I'm repentant. Or I'm consoled on my grieving ash pile. So which is it? I think Connor's right. I think Knack, the commentary, has come to the false conclusion. In fact, I think most translators would do better translating this, I am consoled. Even though I am still on my ash heap of grief, the Almighty answered me, I am consoled. And then he stopped speaking, is a powerful ending to the book of Job. But that's not it. Let me run you through some of the verses, in fact, just the, some of the ones that pop up in Genesis and Exodus, some of the verses of where this word is used elsewhere in Scripture. Genesis 5, 28 through 29. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. Noah's name then is explained, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And that uses the same word that's called repentance when it's talking about Job. But it's a very similar sounding circumstance. That's one use of it. Genesis 6.6, 6, and the Lord regretted, oh, that's a fun open theism discussion there, that that word introduced, but that would be errancy and even arguably 
heresy. You are now talking about God, theology proper, God the Father, and what he does and does not know, and he is omniscient. Do not mess with open theism. Genesis 6, 6, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. That word regretted is the same word that's used for Job. That's a tricky one there. But it's interesting as it's being used of God. God does not need to repent. He is not a man and he is not sinful. So however you understand that word, you've got to be careful not to land on heresy. If God is sinful, you are a heretic. That one is a heresy debate. Genesis 24, 67. Here's a fun one. It's kind of interesting. A little PG-13 also. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Comforted is the same word that Job is just using there. The book of Job. I don't know about you, but I don't really want to revisit the whole theology of a honeymoon to introduce repentance at that point as opposed to consolation and comfort. But it's the same word. See, sometimes the translator has a difficult point. I do want to say this before I shake too, much, too many people on Scripture. Scripture is inerrant. That is, that is an errancy issue, scripture, if you're wrong on that. Scripture is inerrant. It's arguably even a heresy issue. I tend to bump it up that way. And this shouldn't shake you. The few times where the translation is this tricky, none of it is essential doctrine. But it does impact how we view somebody or how we understand a passage. So we need to go back and understand what's going on. Here's another one, Genesis 37, verse 35a. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. This is dealing with the loss and discovery, well, the loss of Joseph. When they come back and bring a report that he is dead, even though they sold him into slavery, his father said, I don't want any comfort from you all. Just leave me alone. He's not saying, although it was needed in this one, he's not saying, I don't want any repentance from you. I don't want any consolation. My heart is hurting. I am grieving, and I cannot be consoled, not in this moment. Interestingly, the end of the story, Joseph now goes and comforts, not repents, comforts his brothers at the death of his father. Genesis 50, verse 20 and 21. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. They needed to repent. He did not. But he brings consolation. Same word. Exodus 13, 17. When, this one's a totally different direction. It's another one where you've got to kind of wrestle with what did it mean. Exodus 13, 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Let the lest the people change their minds. Same word, when they see war and return to Egypt. This would be a bad repentance if they flee back to Egypt. It's not a repentance of sin. It's a repentance of a decision where they want to run away from God now. 
But the decision originally was to follow God. It's repentance in, a, in an opposite way of a good way. See, this word is complicated. The translators have to figure out what to do with it. Exodus 32, 11 through 14, especially the last verse. But Moses, Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented, same word, from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. But again, God doesn't need to repent So if he repents there, it's not a sinful repent, it is a turning, but maybe they should translate it something like this, and the Lord's wrath was consoled from the disaster that he had spoken. Why? Because Abraham, I'm sorry, because Moses was pleading for his people, and God's wrath was consoled, ready for another word, was appeased. That's pretty biblical, isn't it? And the word could go either direction. That, by the way, is the one where it probably fits most of both meaning the exact same thing. But when we read it in English, we understand a very different thing. And maybe maybe the Hebrew listeners didn't. Maybe they understood that word better than we do. But as we come to Job, and Job says, I repent in dust and ashes, you need to understand this. The translator made a decision there for you. It's an interpretive decision. Because they could have just as easily said, I am consoled in dust and ashes. So how do we know which way to go here ultimately? Because here's the thing, in all of these, we don't really get to pick. It sounds like a choose-your-own-adventure, but that is never how we're engaging in Scripture. How we're engaging in Scripture is we're trying to read the words of God and trying to listen to the Holy Spirit living inside of us and directing us in the right understanding of the words of God to then live out the words of God. But it's not as simple as, well, this is the one I like, so I'm going to roll with it. I'm going to go this way because it's my preference. Granted, there is a deal of that that we need to recognize with humility that sometimes that is exactly how we make a choice in a moment like this. But it's not the right way to understand Scripture or study Scripture. Instead, what we need to do is honestly come to it with humility and say, Lord, guide me, including all of my prejudices and everything else that would make me go this way or that way and perhaps do so wrongly. Well, who is our ultimate authority? And the answer, of course, is God. And fittingly, it's not Job that has the last word in the book of Job. It's God that has the last word in the book of Job. And I think God weighs in and settles it for us. Verse 7 through 17. I'm sorry, actually, just 7 through 9 on this part. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Timonite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. How many friends were there, by the way? Four. 
That's another fun wrestling thing in the book of Job. I'll get to that. My anger burns against you three. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken to me what is right. As my servant Job has. Oh, that's a significant statement, isn't it? So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And yes, I'm fully aware of the fact that chapter 38 through 41 was God in power challenging Job's words. But did you hear God's words right now? Right after Job says, either I repent or I am consoled, God looks at his friend and said, my issue is with you three because he spoke rightly of me. And that very much feels like God is weighing in on chapters 3, 2 really, through 37 and declaring that what Job said wasn't out of line. You need to wrestle with that one. God seems to be weighing in and declaring that Job's words are right. And if not entirely right in an inerrancy way, like God's words are, at least in an they are acceptable before me because I love him and I can take that wrestling match. And I want it, but really what I won was Job's heart. He proved me right from what I declared in chapter 1 and 2. He did not abandon me. In fact, he demanded me. I want my God. I want you right here, right now, because I don't get this. And while all the friends are saying you can't talk to, way, to God that way, God comes in at the end and says, y'all were wrong. He was right. And that's why I think this is the consolation of Job. I think the translators got it wrong. I think D.J. O'Connor in the footnote gets it right. Because that word gets used both ways throughout the Old Testament. And some of them are much better understood as, I am consoled. What did Job need most in his life at that moment? Is it a rebuke from God? He got him in power. Or is it consolation at the hands of God who loves him? And then you pair it with God's words. He spoke right. Spoke rightly of me. Unlike you. He rebukes the three friends. He even says to them, I'm not going to listen to you right now. You need to go to Job. You need to make amends with Job. When Job comes to me and asks me to forgive you, then I'll forgive you. There are only a couple moments where that is seen happening in Scripture, and it is significant every time. And by the way, husbands, one of them is spoken of us in 1 Peter 3, 7. How are we going to rightly treat the daughter of God that we are married to 
his princess. Because we aren't going to treat her right. God's going to meet us at the door at Thanksgiving dinner and say, I think we've got to work through some things before you get some sweet potato casserole. I don't care what's on top of it. We've got to have a conversation. But he also says, I think, though, I'm going to need to hear it from her. Kind of interesting. Go look that verse up. That is one of the most terrifying verses of Scripture as a married man, that God might not listen to me if I'm mistreating my wife. And yet also, very fitting as a dad, we understand that statement at the same time. And he looks at the three friends. He said, you spoke wrongly. Go seek him to come to me on your behalf, and I will listen, and then we'll deal with each other. But you spoke wrongly, not him. But I mentioned there's a fourth friend. As if the book of Job didn't give you enough to wrestle with. What in the world do we do with Elihu? The young buck is a little full of himself, has all the answers, waited patiently, awesomely for the older guys to speak, but then comes in and says, you didn't know what you were talking about. Of course, according to God, he's correct too. They didn't know what they were talking about. And I don't, it doesn't weigh in on why he doesn't get rebuked. There is a little difference in his words to Job than their words to Job. And maybe God's saying, he wasn't that out of line, Job. You spoke rightly of me, but you came really close. And he's calling you out on it. Maybe he just gets a pass because he's the young guy. I don't know how that sits with me. But maybe. But it doesn't weigh in on it. He just kind of gets ignored, and it's another thing that we're left wrestling with. What do we do with that? Have fun thinking it through, because I don't have an answer for you. Elihu just seems to sit out there. Wrapping up the rest of Job, verse 10 through the end, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job, the consolation and the restoration of Job. When he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters. Where were they earlier, by the way? Little question. Brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him. Different word, but same thing, by the way. Different word, though. Comforted him. For all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him, and each of them gave him a piece of money and a gold ring. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning and he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapak. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations, and Job died, an old man, and full of days. Before I continue on this, if you heard that siren, let me pray. It's something we do in the youth group. Lord, bless our first responders. Make them a blessing. Give them skill and speed, and take care of everyone involved in that rollout and that call right now. We praise your name. Amen. That's weird to you. Sorry. I'm still a youth pastor. I'm not actually sorry, but I am still a youth pastor. Wrapping up. Well, sorry. Job, back to Let me figure out where I'm at. He restores him. In fact, he gives him double. Double the riches. Well, that's fun. Anybody want to get a double bank account today when you get home? That'd be, that'd be cool. I wish I could promise it to you. I can't. I can almost promise you that it's going to be less than it was before unless your paycheck hit. That's how bank accounts work. But how cool would that be? Double? 
I get double. I mean, I don't want to go through the tough times, but I'll take double anytime God wants to give it to me. Restoration of the family tree and legacy, by the way, also. Now, the reality is this. Anybody who's lost a kid knows this. You can't replace a kid. But even we understand the concept of a rainbow baby, a baby that does replace a kid, not in that it's that simple to replace people. You can't replace people, but you can be blessed with another child. If you don't know the term a rainbow baby, that's what that is. When you've lost a kid in pregnancy or infancy, and then you are blessed with the kid, they sometimes will call that a rainbow baby. It's a reminder that God is watching over you. That God's promise still stands even in the midst of the worst of pain. So we have that concept too. He gets the same number of kids back. It's not to say his kids are replaced, but his legacies restored. He is still blessed with the family. And that was an even bigger day, deal back in the day than it is now, but it is still a big deal. And then the Bible says a funny thing, which it says from time to time. He had the most beautiful daughters in the land. The Bible from time to time, I get a kick out of it because I'm a youth pastor, weighs in on that person was a total hottie. It says it of Joseph. It says it of some women that are in scripture. It says it of David kind of in a different way, but it just weighs in. We don't know why. It just declares it. That person was really good looking. And then it moves on. That's it. It's crazy. It's interesting. I got nothing to do with it other than you just enjoy it. Okay, the Bible is, again, not boring. It throws some details in there that are kind of interesting, including this one. He, he, well, 140. What do you do with 140? Did he live 140 more years? Did he live 140 years total? Nobody knows on that one either. If it's 140 total, it's, he's, he gets the lifespan that's talked about in Psalm 90, 70 to 80 days, and he gets it twice. It's kind of interesting. Or some people argue, wonder if he already had that, and he gets a double blessing of that at the end and lives until he's 210. Fun and interesting. But that's it. It doesn't weigh in on that. But that last part, he gets the family back, and he died an old man and full of days. Imagine if he had listened to his wife's bad advice in chapter 2. They both would have missed out on all of this. Because notice, God doesn't just bless Job. God doubly blesses Job's wife. The other one that's hurting through all of this. Even though she gives him bad advice. There's no indication that Job marries anybody else. There's no indication that his wife died. So the indication seems to be that God sees her too and says, I'm going to give you the same double blessing. Your family's coming back. It's not the same one. You're going to grieve your kids until you are reunited with them. But I did not forget you. And you would have missed out if Job had taken your advice and cursed me and died. Don't forget that. God never declares that to her as far as we know, but his actions do. It's pretty powerful. Wrapping it up, I started with sweet potato casserole. Let's switch over to sweet potato pie. This is, in my family, this is the mega Thanksgiving. We're in Tucson with all of the desserts today because my mother-in-law is an awesome gourmet cook, and so we have all the pies and all the cakes and all of the cookies and way more food that we can eat for a very small group of people, and it's amazing. Let me wrap this up and try not to kill the clock at the same time. Number one, wrapping up Job, this is God Almighty. 
This is God in the power of chapter 38 through 41 that can handle any problem that this planet can throw his way and do not lose sight of God Almighty. As you struggle through the problem of pain, and it is a problem, Scripture calls it that. Do not lose sight of God Almighty. In fact, cling to him, run to him, wrestle with him, punch him, whatever you need to do. Those of you who weren't with us that day, it's a, an image of what we were talking about. you got to go back to the sermons or you got to check with me afterwards. I don't literally mean punch God, but you know what? Our God's big enough to take it. That is part of the message of Job. He can take your wrestlings with the problem of pain and even your frustrations with him. And at the end, say you spoke rightly of him. Why? Because you're still going to him. Because you're still clinging to him, saying, you're almighty and I need you. I don't know what to call you right now, but I'm sticking with almighty. That's why I'm clinging to you like a life raft. And you're more than that. God almighty, right theology matters, right interpretation matters, right application matters. And the right differentiation between all of those things matter too, by the way. What is heresy and what is just a disagreement over application? But here's the other part of Job. That almighty God answers us through his word, through his people. Sometimes in the Old Testament we see directly. That's another fun theological discussion for right now. But he does answer. He is not silent and he is not absent. He is with us in the valley of the shadow of death and he answers us sometimes in his power, and that can shake us. But he absolutely answers us. But also this, Job is consoled. I think that's the best translation of that. When God comes in and says, Job, I see your pain, and I'm here to heal. You have been through an ordeal because Satan is evil. And this broken world is hard but I heal and I redeem. And you, Job, are consoled, and it's a reminder that we are consoled. You need to understand this. God consoles those who wrestle with him through the problem of pain and suffering. We need to have the right theology of suffering. God does not abandon us because we're suffering. In fact, sometimes it's when he's most present. We, have, we need to have a right theology of counsel and giving good counsel, not his friend's counsel where we rush in and go, well, what did you do to cause this? Sometimes we do need to correct somebody. Usually that's the territory of the Holy Spirit. But if we're in the right relationship, there is a time where we do correct somebody. But instead of looking to correct all the time, how about we just jump into the fight corner of the person that's wrestling with God? Not that we're against God, but then we jump in with them and we encourage them and we challenge them to get back in there. And instead of ditching God to cling to him even more and walk through the pain with them instead of condemning them outright. And yes, the corner crew sometimes does correct the fighter. You're a little off on that one because I love you and you know it. Let me bring you back. But you're not done wrestling with God, so get back in there, and I will cheer you on instead of walking away from you. That is part of the right theology of a struggling person. We see it spelled out in Scripture, but we see it 
lived out in the book of Job as he wrestles with God, but he wrestles alone because his friends and his family have failed him. We need to be comforters. It's just another way to put the call in 2 Corinthians 5 to be ambassadors of reconciliation. God could have left us as condemners, ambassadors of hell. But that's not what Scripture calls us. It calls us ambassadors of reconciliation. You pick the fight with God, and he's bringing terms of peace. So let me encourage you towards the God who redeems and corrects, but the God that gives grace. Because we need to be ambassadors of redemption. Celebrating this other fact from Job that our Redeemer lives. And because he lives, we can rejoice and endure through the greatest of pain, anticipating consolation even in this broken world. I was going to pray, but I got two other things, sorry. Well, one other thing, the other one I'll remind you right before the benediction. There's a book that Pastor Benji recommended. It's by Eric Ortland. I've been meaning to recommend it for a while, but if you want more on the book of Job, look this one up. Eric Ortland, Suffering Wisely and Well. Again, it's by Eric Ortland. The title is Suffering Wisely and Well. And let's pray. Lord, you are mighty and holy. You are so wonderful to us. Lord, help us to anticipate consolation whenever we face the problem of pain. And if restoration is not in your plan for us until we reach heaven and rejoin you, so be it. But Lord, so often you also restore even before eternity. And so Lord, let us look for your active presence because you, our Redeemer, is a living and active God. And so we praise your name. Amen.